Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded by me, Liam Miller. He, him, he's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Gayomago people and is supported by the vital leadership pathways of uh, the Synod of New South Wales, uh, ACT, the Uniting Church Synod, or something like that. Uh, my guest today joining me is Anna Flerko-Scheid. Uh, Anna, uh, welcome along. Thank you. It's good to be here. So uh, for those who don't know, Anna is Associate Professor uh, in the Department of Theology at Duquesne University, and we are talking about her book, Just Revolution, A Christian Ethic of Political Resistance and Social Transformation, which is out with Lexington Books, and you can pick it up wherever you get books. So there it is. Uh, Really excited to talk about this book today. So I guess just to wade us into this conversation, um, where did the idea to to tackle this, or give us a bit of the broad brush of the book, and I guess where did the uh, the impetus come from to go? You know what I want to sit down and spend a lot of time thinking about just revolution. Yeah, that's a that's a fun fun first question. Um, so I um, I remember learning about the just war tradition in my master's program, and um, thinking really early on, this is interesting, but it really it really um, is sort of a bias in favor of powerful nation states, right? Mm. Um, something like a legitimate, you have to have a legitimate authority, really kind of, um, and the idea that that legitimate authority is sort of like instantiated through a government of some kind. Mm. Um, you know, historically it had to be the king or the monarch or the emperor. Um, and thinking kind of, okay, well, that's definitely not got sort of a preferential option for the oppressed or anything like that going on there. And I remember yeah, yeah. asking a few professors, um, well, what, what would happen if, you know, we were talking more about revolutionary groups or groups that were trying to, um, yeah, overthrow their own governments, right, because of oppression. And there just weren't answers out there at the time about it. People would kind of go, okay, yeah, I, I hear the problem, but I don't have a solution. And um, I really went into my doctoral program knowing that this was like exactly the question I wanted to pursue, right? So mm. what is an ethical way for uh, oppressed, severely oppressed people to free themselves, liberate themselves from that oppression? Mm. Um, yeah. And so then I got introduced to the just peacemaking theory, which is sort of the first part of the book. I had already been introduced to the just war tradition, and I knew that was going to be a real challenge to kind of try to um, rethink those criteria. Yep. And I'd spent some time in South Africa and a lot of time researching South Africa and their um, anti-apartheid movement. And I had kind of fallen in love with it, frankly. Um, <laughs> I felt like uh, I could really spend a lot of time thinking through how that movement um, happened and um, what was good about it, what was just about it, what was ethical about it, um, and sort of presenting that as a potential model for revolutionary activity elsewhere. Mm, thank you for that. That, that um, aftermath of revolution, right, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, thank you. And I know, like you um, kind of mentioned both, both in the introduction then appears right at the end of the chapter that, like, you know, you're writing this kind of just on the heels or in, in, in the midst in some ways and on the heels of, you know, the series of movements kind of classifies the Arab Spring um, right. as well. How, how did it feel, I guess, you know, so you've got you've got your main case study, but you've also got this kind of like, well, like something is happening <laughs> that that yeah. really it, um, was there that lure to go. I want to go more there, but but it's still in flux, so I'm gonna you know stick here. Um, or did you did it just feel like 
did this help add to the liveness of the the issue as you were trying to to explore it? Yeah. Um, so I think that like when you're writing about um, something in ethics or it, possibly any subject area, but certainly in ethics, mm -hmm. and then there's something happening <laughs> that <laughs> looks exactly like what you're looking at. I don't, I think you have to address it, but it mm -hmm. is a kind of balancing act, especially when it's something that's sort of um, temporally bound like that, right? Yeah. Like the Arab Spring was happening when I was writing. It's not it's not happening anymore. There's still, um, mm. you know, implications and residual effects and things like that. But you, yeah, there's a little balancing act of how much of my writing should be addressing this situation, or is that more for a blog post or something, right? Versus um, focusing in more on concepts. But uh, I find it really hard not to address what's going on in the world right now when I do ethics. Some people. Yeah but I'm not that. <laughs> definitely more of an applied ethicist. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that a lot. It, it's interesting. So you kind of, you open with um, the book talks about like the 1983 U S council of bishops uh, mm -hmm. who declared that uh, insufficient analytical attention has been given to the moral issue of revolutionary warfare. So essentially right. that's 83. And then you're talking about having discussions in, in, in your theological education and very few answers out there. So I guess any guess on why you still think, because I guess you'd still probably say there's been insufficient attention paid, or at least, you know, I don't know whether things have changed in the last little while, but what do you think has has this allowed that lacuna to persist or allowed it to persist so so long? Is it um, just, again, that it's, it's we're just too ingrained in a certain, like, privileging of the nation state or, or a certain tentativeness to get, you know... Um, get behind groups that we, you know, you don't yet know how it's all going to play out or maybe more complex or is it something else entirely? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <You're trying. laughs> I, could, I could wager a guess that, um, I mean, so in the 19, in the 1980s, after the U.S. bishops had, had written that, that line that you just quoted, um, we did see a rise in what, what we call liberation theology in Latin America. And there's a lot of resonances um, in my work with, with liberation theology. Um, it was also very controversial. Um, it was viewed as Marxist, um, some, in some ways maybe fairly and in some ways maybe not fairly. Um, it was it was being reviewed by the Catholic Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith for a while as maybe something that should be declared uh, off limits for Catholic uh, theology and ethics. Um, and so it's possible that there was a little bit of a, um, a, a an institutional kind of um, squashing of discussion around it a little bit for a while. Um, and I think that along with that, um, people who get higher degrees in academic uh, theology and, and in religious ethics are not people who are typically oppressed, right? So um, just kind of, I think to some degree, having had experiences working with and being around people um, who had been oppressed um, in, in the South African context was a bit of a wake up call for me personally. Um, not only about what was ha what had happened there, but also about race relations in my own country mm -hmm. um, and how they needed to be addressed as well. So I think, yeah, just if if we're you know if we keep letting people who are more privileged be the people who are getting the PhDs, then yeah. <laughs> then our work can reflect that. Yeah, mm -hmm. So take a while. Yeah, thanks for that. 
So I guess let's let's talk a little about revolution uh, and and you know what we're kind of thinking about that as then we begin to then think about what a just revolution might look like. So you kind of um, you bring in um, you know Hannah. Uh, Aunt, uh, this is one of those names again that you like. We, we had a whole conversation about names before, which one you just read forever, but not actually now I'm, I'm seeing it on a recorded thing, which was just that was fun. Um, but you, but you developed this idea of, um, you know, kind of bringing in her and then also bringing in um, Sharon Erickson, um, Nipstad, um, to argue this idea of. You know that that nonviolent resistance kind of should form the initial aspect of a revolution, but that there is this room uh, for you know a taking up of arms with the idea of this complete overhaul for, of the society and the replacement of something new. So just just talk to us a bit about your, your way into thinking about revolution and 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 how that you know that definition that you start to develop um, begins to shape the project for what's going to come. Yeah, so what I love about um, Hannah Arendt is she's really specific, like her, her understanding of revolution is, um, it's very much shaped by what she wants revolution to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, so what, she's, what, what constitutes revolution for her is the end, the end game, right? So yeah. the, the idea of a more just society, more attentive to human dignity and human rights than the one that it's replacing, right? And for her, um, she's for her violence is a necessary component of it. Um, she's looking at the American Revolution and mm-hmm. the French Revolution. So that that's I think that I think that your case studies matter. So she's mm-hmm. looking at her two revolutions that are violent, and that kind of leads her to the idea that there, it must include violence in some way. Um, she's also writing much earlier and before a lot of. Um, the kind of uh, research into the actual effectiveness of nonviolence, which is is actually mm. nonviolence is quite effective um, empirically. It's been studied. So yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Sharon Erickson Nepstat kind of comes in and shows us several case studies where she um, is pointing out how the nonviolent approaches tended to be more effective in certain cases than mm. the violent approaches. And she's also building on some research from a few folks. Um, who are American sociologists named Maria um, Stefan and Erica Chenoweth, who I don't know if you or your listeners have heard of these two folks, but they're people who've done a lot of work studying um, nonviolent direct action mm-hmm. and its effectiveness, and they find that it's typically more effective than violent um, resistance. So all that said, <laughs> um, I, uh, I wanted to affirm um, the possibility of a completely nonviolent revolution that would be effective and would would encompass that aim that Hannah yeah. Arendt desires, right? Of a more just society um, with greater attention to dignity and human rights. And my um, Christian commitments also sort of um, impel me or compel me mm. to want to do that, right? So yeah. I'd r- much rather see a nonviolent revolution than an armed revolution. Um, and then I think the second part which you mentioned is that said, if nonviolence is consistently met with repressive violence, and if I say nation states have the right to defend themselves potentially using force, then I need to be able to say that um, oppressed peoples also have a right to self-defense even using armed force, right? So that's kind of where that definition um, Yeah. 
shapes the um, at least the part of the book, right? The first couple chapters. Yeah, because there's in the book kind of looks then first at the kind of this bringing in just peacemaking and particularly focusing again on that South African case study of the right. kind of array of nonviolent strategies and means by which that change was pursued and then and then looks at as you said before kind of a reconfiguring of just war theory to talk about the 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 potential for armament so let's go with the first bit so thinking about that um as you're doing that research of of the south african context um particularly through this lens of okay what was the way it was pursued um peacefully or non-violently um what, what were some of the things that you you kind of found there that like you know were particularly um, you know either fruitful or fascinating or surprising uh, in, in that way of, of of thinking through the the South African context because as, as you say earlier in the book I mean lots has been written about the South right. African march toward uh, of the anti-apartheid movement um, what was it like looking at it through this lens of this um, just peacemaking and, and what kind of did you find as you as you yeah work through that section of the book. Oh. Good question. Um, well, I will say, I think one of the lasting um, impressions that I have from working on that section of the book is um, that nonviolent political resistance is more than nonviolent direct action. So nonviolent direct action, where we protest or we boycott or we march, um, those are super important and often effective um, tools, right, in the um, in the nonviolent political resistance toolbox, right? But um, in the South African context, they they were quite organized and smart. Um, they documented what they wanted. Um, so, you know, in in the U.S. at least right now, we see a lot of protests where people say, "What do these people want?" Right? Like, what what are the demands? Like, what are you asking for? And I think that's a good lesson that comes out of South Africa. Like if you, if you are going to protest, be sure you know what you're, why you're protesting. What do you want to see happen here and make that public? Um, so the documentation on the kinds of human rights adjustments that they wanted was, um, was there. People came together in um, huge congresses and voted on these things, right? So they were actually enacting the kind of democracy they wanted amongst themselves, even before the government um, was, was overturned. Um, another thing that they, um, they did that I think they did really effectively in South Africa is over decades drawing international support to their cause. Um, I think sort of, this is what's so cool about the just peacemaking theory is it really broadens this idea of what is nonviolent resistance? Well, some nonviolent resistance is marching and boycotting, but it's also getting out your message to allies, right? And it's also making sure that you um, draw in as much support internationally as you can. Um, you know, there's a part later in the book where I talk about fighting um, or the way that the anti-apartheid movement required um, the Nationalist Party of South Africa to, to, to repress on multiple fronts. And that international front was really hard to repress, right? How does um, how does a political uh, party within one country repress internationally? That's really tough. So many people argue that that international component was one of the major factors that brought down the apartheid regime. Thank you for that. that that's that's really helpful. And um, as you say, like you know, it's, it's this expansiveness. And I think you say, you know that is the the necessary foregrounding or the necessary beginning point that yes. then is the like does that achieve it 
or is there a sense now that it has only, like only been met with violent resistance and 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 and, and further repression or oppression? Um, and in which case, then you kind of move into the next section, which is about looking at some of those traditional categories of just war theory, which have been you know have a long and storied uh, mm-hmm. history in, in, in Christian theology, Christian ethics, in in, in um, lots of engagement thinking. So looking at them, but obviously needing to make certain moves in order to kind of, uh, as you say, move out of the realm of, uh, under the realm of a king uh, or an emperor. So so um, talk to us a bit about that process and how you, you know, some of those moves that you are necessary to make um, in, in, and how you kind of, yeah, reconfigure things going forward. And again, I guess how the South African context was um, illustrative in that. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me think for a second. So there's um, seven, I think, just four principles, criteria that I work th- through in the book. Um, and I feel like I'm trying to think about um, which ones seem to be like the most important to co- to discuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, know yeah, don't, if you don't feel like you need to go about all seven of them. No, no, people need to go and buy the book. So you know, don't give away the farm here. You know, like, okay. <laughs> but like, if you just have one that you yeah. found was a particularly interesting, uh, you know, leap to make. <laughs> sure. So one of the more difficult ones is legitimate authority, and I mentioned mm. that earlier in our conversation because um, because it, uh, the tradition, the Christian tradition, has really been, I think, biased in favor of the de facto ruler, right? So whoever's in charge is the legitimate authority for, yeah. especially for someone like Augustine. Um, Thomas Aquinas comes along later and he's like, well, they have to be actually concerned with the common good to be legitimate, which helps us a lot <laughs> as we're trying to like revise this today. But both for both of them, um, I mean, God might even purposefully put in a tyrant to punish a wayward people, mm-hmm. right? That's at least not not the theological perspective I want to have when it comes to people living under severe repression today. Um, And so uh, I talk about um, legitimate authority in terms of that, that organization operating in a repressive or oppressive context that seems to encourage people's political participation Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to um, have the consent and support of the people mm-hmm. and that is dedicated only to using force in order to pursue justice as opposed to maintaining its own power, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of the South African context, I look at the ANC as the, the legitimate authority in that context, the African National Con- uh, Con- Congress, which um, for people who don't know is the, the sort of political party um, that was Nelson Mandela's political party uh, that he was the president of prior to his incarceration by the regime. So um, encouraging the politi- uh, people's political participation. So in a revolutionary context, the people are already trying to participate. You wouldn't have a revolution if you didn't have that participation. So who's encouraging that broad participation? Who's squashing it, right? Yes. So if a regime is squashing it, they can't, they're not a legitimate authority unless you're sort of enabling um, democratic participation, I don't think you can be a legitimate authority. Um, the consent and support of the people. So so who do the people seem to be saying, um, we're with this person, they're with us. And in some ways, this is an aftermath argument, but the ANC overwhelmingly wins the first um, election. Mm. So it's clear that they have huge popular support. Mm. And then finally, using force to pursue justice as opposed to maintaining their own power. Um, as the ANC does start to uh, form its armed 
militia wing um, in Konto Usezwe, um, they are very careful um, to gradually escalate force to start with things like sabotage, which don't incur any loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not in all saying there were not <laughs> serious atrocities committed even by Mkwantu Usezwe because there were at times, but over overwhelmingly, um, they policed their own people when it came to those atrocities, they reined those things in. So um, those are some of the ways in which I sort of used the South African mm-hmm. context to try to get at this this really um, difficult, thorny issue of legitimate authority. Um, and I'll stop with that. Yeah, no, that's really, really <laughs> helpful. Thank you. Uh, and, and gives a good way in of just, as you say, like, you know, how, how do you take that tradition that, that is so rich, but like, yeah, has certainly had a bias, but yeah. use its own categories in a way of in an expansive way. And um, I think is really helpful. So, so I guess I'm curious to talk a bit about the, because you talk a bit about the post- revolution that's also encompassed in in this kind of discussion because I guess like you know there'd be that popular popular knee-jerk kind of response of like oh revolutions only end up like patterning the what what came before right it's you know it's the you know and that's obviously happened right like you know you know group seizes power and then just becomes the same or worse um as what they replaced um and so I guess how does, how does, yes, just, because often, you know, you think of the revolution ends when, I don't know, the guillotine comes down and then it's now government and, and that's when it changes. How, I guess, are you thinking about revolution as, as yes, going, kind of continuing on past the toppling um, into the the establishment of the new? Um, yeah. You know, and I know you talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, in the South African context. How does, I guess, yeah, j- just revolution um, apply or, or, or shape how, how how we think about that transitional and establishing time. Yeah, so I think that this is where um, the the sort of we sometimes call them like the temporal categories of the just war tradition, where you have use anti bellum, um, use ad bellum, use in bello. So you're talking about justice at various sort of temporal stages of a conflict before, um, uh, really before you even think about anything and then yeah. thinking about maybe going into a situation and then while you're in the situation mm. and then you post vellum is the most recent category that's being developed um, mm. about the aftermath of violent conflict. And um, I think that especially for revolutionary contexts, but probably frankly in non-revolutionary violent conflict situations as well, the through line from um, from use um, anti all the way through use post becomes really important. And one of the major issues for me was looking at the way um, there was a kind of desire or intent to reconcile even before um, armed resistance was taken up in the South African context. And you can literally look at writings of Nelson Mandela where he's like, we, we can't go so far as to dehumanize our enemy because we have to live with them, right? Like we have to come out of this on the other side and find a way to live together, which is remarkably insightful for someone who um, 
you know, uh, took up arms against his, his government um, and spent 27 years in prison um, and was mm. tortured and mm. lost much of his eyesight from the hard labor in the mines that he was forced to do during his imprisonment, right? It's just incredible. Um, we Christians call that grace, I think, right? Mm. Where yeah. he is, um, <laughs> he's capable of thinking about reconciliation with these um, folks who are harming him so severely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, even prior to um, the armed resistance, you started hearing folks talk about um, reconciliation. And I think part of that is attributable to a general cultural um, mindset in um, Southern African societies that's called Ubuntu. Um, and Ubuntu is a um, a a word that comes out of a Bantu linguistic group that's used actually across much of Southern Africa, not just South Africa. Um, And it's kind of a humanistic philosophy. So um, it's a belief that our personhood is constituted through other people's personhood. And that if I'm dehumanizing someone else, then I'm simultaneously dehumanizing myself. Um, And so uh, I think that sort of, um, already present cultural mindset among mm-hmm. so many people in that part of the world helped a lot with this mm-hmm. desire to um, break cycles of violence and not just sort of have a situation where we're going to take over and oppress you white people in the same way that you've done mm-hmm. um, to us. I mean, if anything, I think it's arguable that um, the governments of South Africa since independence or since freedom haven't done enough to sort of re-empower um, Black mm. communities, there, right? And um, haven't done enough in terms of land redistribution and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm. Um, but yeah, that Ubuntu piece seems really important. Mm. Thank you for that. So it's interesting. So the book, as you say, in that last chapter, you're kind of, you know, wrestling with what was going on a little bit at the time, like offering a little bit of a thought into that. Um, now, at the time then is not at the time now, right? So it's interesting. Like, I mean, so the book was published in 2015. Uh, right. I'm not sure at what point exactly you were writing it, but sometime a little before that. And it's, it's <laughs> scarily 2021 now. So like, you know, decent <laughs> amount of time between that, which both, I guess, informs, you know, the hour of spring, but also totally other things have happened. As you say, like, you know, thinking about your experience in South Africa made you think differently about living in the US and, and you know, over the last few years, the last couple of years in like you know the the uh, proliferation uh, and expansion of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and uprisings around that um, we saw you know a, a what, what, what some might have categorized as a revolutionary seize on the on the U.S. Capitol uh, you know we've seen a, a lot of different things um, you know in this time and I guess like you know it's always interesting when you, as you you know continue to reflect on a book and and a project and 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 going forward um how it all has having this book and this research in your background like you know and the resources that come from doing this have done this work um shaped i guess you know and pick anything from what i've just kind of outlined <laughs> um you know how you've kind of approached responded to viewed yeah. some of the things that have been happening since like you know yeah yeah, it's such a huge and heavy yeah. oh, question. Yeah. Um, certainly, um, I mean, it's. I think in my own context, the the contrast between um, 
what we what we're now calling the January 6th insurrection, which was mm -hmm. the um, violent assault on the U.S. Capitol while um, the lawmakers were in the process of um, the what should normally be the peaceful transition of power, but we didn't get that this time. Um, the contrast between that and the Black Lives Matter movement, which despite um, despite a lot of um, I think media that that sort of zeroes in on moments of of, of violence has been overwhelmingly peaceful. Mm. Um, so. I guess one of my main um, frustrations with the January 6th insurrection is um, the incredible impatience of those so-called mm -hmm. activists. Mm -hmm. um, Black folks in this country have been protesting, resisting, um, organizing politically for decades and even centuries uh, in order to you know, meet what I think are just ends. Um, and those, the, the January 6th folks, you know, it took them all of about three or four weeks to go from, you know, maybe some online chatter of, an, I don't know, a few nonviolent protests, but where they still brought guns with them mm, yeah, right. <laughs> and used them, but they brought them with them mm. um, to the violent, uh, the attempt to violently overthrow the election. Um, I, there's no, there's no way that that is a, a just revolution within a Christian framework, at least, which is... I, the folks who who carried out that action, many of them see themselves as Christians. Mm -hmm. It's really disturbing um, because uh, if you watch videos of the uh, January 6th insurrection, they're thanking Jesus mm -hmm. for their their for having gotten in and having gotten past the police. And um, it's really again, yeah, it's just super disturbing. Mm -hmm. um, but despite the fact that unarmed black folks are being um, killed by uh, representatives of the state um, and are still um, maintaining largely nonviolent protests, um, it's remarkable to then contrast that with mm. the January 6th um, terrorists, rioters, mm. whatever we are calling them, who um, without having anybody be, <laughs> be physically harmed in their group, um, Mm. Uh, took up arms um, and uh, killed many, you know, people <laughs> that day, resulting in the death of one of their own supporters mm. as well. Um, it's shocking. Mm. shocking. Mm. Um, and it's it strikes me as uh, a moral tantrum and quite quite childish, frankly. Mm. Um, yeah, but chi childish with guns, which is unfortunately how we roll here in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <it's pretty laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Disturbing. <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, thank you for that. I guess it was, I think that's a very very helpful way of uh, again showing how this is, you know, a, a, an applied applicable way of thinking about you know, the ethics yeah. of, of of how we respond uh, in these situations, which is which is really helpful. So, I guess thinking about this as a you know uh, a bit of a, you know. You were trying to respond to a lacuna, trying to respond to a gap in in, in what you saw. Um, as people, if you, you know, hopefully people can, you know, whenever we do these things, people continue to think about it and wrestle with these ideas of, of a just revolution. Um, but again, it's probably something I've only seen. Like I've seen this book um, 
And I know one work I read on like um, Nat Turner, like applied a bit of a just revolution ethic. I guess what are your thoughts on what you'd how you'd hope to see people continue to wrestle with this idea of, you know, the just war tradition, the just peacemaking movement that, that, that has been developing much more recently and, 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 and your contribution to just revolution? What would your hope be as this kind of, people continue to think about this is it just like it can just be so people keep thinking about this um but but i guess yeah if, if it's almost like that thing of like you know we, we're when you write a book you can only t- cover so much and you know we don't necessarily have the um time and attention to go i'm going to keep uh, exploring all the corners but you're like this yeah. aspect that i couldn't do people definitely should <laughs> um anything like that yeah, so I'm not sure if I'm fully getting at your question here, but so here's some, here's some random thoughts. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, again, a lot of this is is um, true in my context in the U.S. So if it's not true in your context or other people's contexts, then I'd love to hear about that. I guess. <laughs> but um, in my own context, I think that. Um, for about a decade, we've been struggling with misunderstanding civil disobedience. Um, we've been struggling with um, misnaming violence. Um, so, um, for example, there are folks who will say, well, you've blocked this road. That is violent, right? You've, you protesters have blocked this road. Yeah, that is yeah. violent. And so I think we're, um, we're starting to have to wrestle as ethicists with what are the ethics of nonviolent struggle, right? Like, what are the like, when can you shut down a road and when should you really not shut down a road? Um, and um, I think just doing a lot of education about why something like um, civil disobedience yeah. is being done in the first place. Um, so. I, for example, when I talk to my students, I try to say like, they're trying to get attention, right? Like that's the whole mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> they're trying to disrupt your, your day, right? So um, it, because they need you to like focus on something outside of your normal, um, yeah, your normal yeah. kind of vision um, for one reason or another. But I also hope that we talk more about um, political resistance as creative um, I think we can look at the performance artists and the um, uh, the artists um, to help show us the way. I think one of the most um, powerful acts of civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance that we've seen in the United States in the past um, decade or so was a woman named Bree Newsom, who's a fairly mm. well-known activist. Um, who climbed up the uh, flagpole at the South Carolina State House following the massacre of nine worshipers by a white supremacist in a church in Charleston um, here in the United States. And um, she climbed up the flagpole because the Confederate flag, which was is the, the flag of um, the flag of the Confederacy, which was the oppositional group during the US Civil War getting into the nitty gritty here, but it really represents <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, slaveholders. It represents yeah. slaveholding. Um, so she um, has this all filmed, uh, puts mm. on her gear, climbs to the top of the flagpole, reciting the Psalms while she's doing it, mm. pulls the flag down. Um, and as she comes down from the flagpole, the police are waiting and she's arrested. And then this video of her doing this goes viral, yep. right? That's so really, really symbolically um, and artistically powerful and she's not blocking streets and she's not just kind of shouting into things right but Mm. um 
between you know that act and some other kinds of protests and the families speaking out about what happened to their um their loved ones in that church that flag no longer flies over the south carolina state house mm. so again it's effective um yeah yeah i don't know i think that was a really uh mm move right so i want people who want um to overturn certain government practices certain laws i want them to get smart i want them to get strategic i want them to get creative right mm. so and those are kind of the conversations that i like having with people in my own context right now about this kind of work yeah no that's really that's very helpful i think um yeah applicable to lots of contexts including uh, my own here so i appreciate that a lot and uh yes and, and even that, that thing you say about helping to think about um like violence, like, cause you know, we often, you know, um, we often see it's, it's that kind of to use the, the, the sporting analogy. It's always the person who reacts that gets in trouble because the person, the umpire doesn't yeah. see the first thing, but it's like, you know, we're so used to not seeing the kind of general societal violence that is meted out on, a, on, on oppressed uh, groups and individuals that, you know, when, when something, a flare up happens and there's a response, that's what gets all the attention as the violent act. Um, and, and we ignore the many ways that, um, there's just a, a a blanket or a permeating haze of violence that um, is is being right. resisted in a moment that that is more visible. Yeah, right, right. Mm. That's right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, folks, the book is just Revolution: A Christian Ethic of Political Resistance and Social Transformation. As I said, out through uh, Lexington Books. Uh, please go check it out. It's been a wonderful conversation and there's such richness in the book that, that we obviously didn't even get into because that was the point. Uh, <laughs> but we I've surely gave you a uh, great impetus to, to check it out if you can. Uh, Anna, is there anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to in this moment? Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think so, but thanks for offering. I will say on the issues of um, kind of what makes ethical, nonviolent, political resistance in, in the here and now around some of these issues we've been talking about that a colleague of mine and I are currently working on that, <laughs> that kind of project. Um, and maybe I'll let you know when it, when it comes out. Yes, so. please do. We'll have to get you both on to, to talk about it. Cause that'll be great. Um, well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it and learn a lot. Uh, and uh, folks, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you for having me. <laughs>